0: Matthew 13, I'm going to start reading in the 47th verse down through verse 58. Just to familiarize you with this section a bit. Matthew 13 is the chapter of parables. So if you recall or you can think of Jesus saying things like, The kingdom of heaven is like a sower with seed. Or if you ever heard an example of, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. That's this chapter. Jesus has taught imaginatively with illustrations. He has not been boring in describing spiritual truths, but instead helping to understand what is the kingdom of heaven like? We come now to the end of that chapter. Chapter. And at the end of the chapter, there's going to be, I believe in Matthew's view as he's writing, an accounting of things. Every once in a while, when you come to the end of something, you take an accounting of it. I'm going to call this little section at the end, in some ways it's a potpourri of a few different things. These are closing statements. And if you thought about that in number terms, it's like the time when you come to the end and you sort of reconcile your checkbook. For those under the age of 30, a checkbook was a physical pad where you could write a merchant on there and they would... T- anyway. This is a reconciling of things. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to see as we read a reconciling or an accounting of judgment. Jesus speaks of at the end of all things what happens in judgment. Then we're going to see that there is an accounting of understanding or an accounting of truth. He wants the disciples to be those who hear. And then finally, there's going to be an accounting of Jesus' success. We'll put that in quotes, air quotes his success in ministry, an accounting of his honor or his being received. And what we're going to see is that it's not so far a good showing. Let's read together. I'm going to look at the 47th verse, Matthew 13, down through the end of the chapter. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew to shore and sat down and sorted the good into, the containers, into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And he said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's take a moment and pray. Well, Father, we've gathered once again and it's a Sunday morning once again and we're in this room once again and we've looked at Scripture once again. But We ask that this consistency, these good habits would not make us numb or lackluster, but that we would be attentive. We want what is sturdy and strong and steadfast. We want what is old. And we want it to be new. We desire to be made more like Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I would love to be of benefit to those who have come. So Spirit of God, help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus uses a parable once again, a parable this time of a net being thrown out and gathering in fish of every kind. I don't know how you are as a fisherman, but I'm generally terrible as a fisherman. I've gone fishing a couple of times in the last few months, which is an exponential level of growth for my fishing career. More than that, there's been a couple of times where a line that was on the other end of a rod that I happened to be holding had a fish on it when I reeled it in, which is again a miraculous occurrence. I've even had the case where in the gathering of fish, I've realized that there are some fish you keep and some fish you don't. I'm grateful because of the people that I fish with. They know the rules concerning these things, and I don't. I am not in judgment over the fish Someone else is. That's a pretty straightforward way to describe what Jesus taught. But I learned that sometimes you throw out and you catch the fish, the thing, the good fish that you wanted. You say to yourself, what I really want is really, really tasty trout or something. Or I'd like red fish because I could cook that and I want to eat it. And sometimes right in the moment of exciting, you're pulling it in and you realize instead you get a catfish. And this happened to me on numerous occasions. Now, in this instance, it is not an immediate separating of the kinds of fish like the quality fishermen that I've gone with do, but instead, Jesus describes a net being thrown out, and because all the fish are in the same net, they stay in there together for a while. What he means is that there is a mixed company, a mixed bag, and that though you bring in a good haul overall, you could point out and even see, sometimes it's very evident that there are things that are not good remaining with what is good. And Jesus tells them this parable to show them a couple things. What is the closing statement that he's going to make concerning judgment? Well, he wants them to not be saddened or discouraged, but instead to remember at least these two things. One, there will be an accounting. Justice will be met out. And two, it's not yet, but it will be in the future. Both these things should be encouraging, because if you've lived in this world for more than maybe five minutes, you would know that there is a mixed bag of things. We rejoice on the one hand, little girls are born into the world, and we are saddened on the other hand, there is poverty and disease and sickness and people die in difficult and terrible circumstances. It is a net full of good and bad. More than that, it seems that some of the bad happens because people do it intentionally. It's not just mere fallenness, like, oh, I forgot. Instead, people harm one another and hold one another in contempt, oftentimes for the most petty and shallow and disastrously evil reasons. And if you've lived in this world for a couple minutes, you'd say to yourself, how is this a kingdom? If I sign up for this faith, Jesus, if I'm going to follow you, how is it possible that a kingdom has come when so many evildoers, obvious out evildoers and hidden conniving evildoers, how are they still remaining? And Jesus says, I want to remind you again. He says it again because He already gave us the wheat and tares speech earlier in Matthew 13 that an accounting will come. There will be an accounting. He says the angels are going to come. We saw them as reapers the last time in and Tares. The angels are going to come and there will be a great separation. This ought to encourage those of us who fear and wonder will or can they get away with this? The reality is, is that every tear will be wiped away. Every sadness undone. Every evildoer punished. All that has been whispered will be shouted. All that has been hidden will be brought to light. And God in all of His glorious, perfect, manifold wisdom and justice will decisively and perfectly bring about His judgment. When the Old Testament speaks of this, sometimes the, psalm, the psalmists, these songwriters, they would have been the artists of the day, they exploded in joy over this. They said, let justice roll down. like They imagined these natural, beautiful waterfalls and roaring thunder of God coming in perfect judgment. And Jesus tells them, I want to remind you this is coming. The reason they need to be reminded is because, is because the kingdom is what many have called already but not yet. And already but not yet is the place where we all have to live. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus has come. He has died for sin. He has resurrected a newness of life. Salvation is near. It is called today. So these are certain truths, and yet they are also not yet fully realized. Many of us live in the tension of this. It means that, one, we can account on there will be a final judgment, but secondarily we should be encouraged to stay patient because we don't yet live where this full justice reigns. Hebrews chapter 2 acknowledges this. Writing after the resurrection of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So angels are workers, they're servants, but they're not in charge of the whole thing. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Son of man is his title for Jesus. It says you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. There's a period there. And for many of us, we wish the sentence ended. We just wish the teaching ended. Yes, I'm in on this. Tell me more about the glory and the control and everything in subjection under the feet. Nothing outside of his control. That's what we want and we wish we were here now. But the writer of Hebrews goes on and in verse 8, he continues and says, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And if you don't know how pregnant that sentence is, you haven't looked at the suffering of the world in a while. There are plenty of things we do not yet see at present. And so Jesus gives this illustration to say there is a coming judgment, but be patient because it is not yet in subjection to him. The great reality that undergirds this whole teaching is a reality that must be reckoned with. And that is that the judgment is coming. It means that we must accept the hard sayings of Jesus if we are to get the solace of his soft sayings. I've heard it said one time that hard sayings or hard truths make soft hearts, but a litany of or a consistently only soft sayings or soft truths make hardened hearts. And I believe this is true. There's a temptation to receive from Scripture, to receive from God, to receive from Jesus everything that is pleasant, but to ignore hard sayings as well. And here is one of those places that we must not shrink back. Scripture tells us that there is a place of eternal punishment, a place called hell, a place of torment and wrath. And Jesus talks about this more than anyone. One of my favorite writers about godly things. He's a theologian. His name is John Frame. He says this, I must with some reluctance look at the other side of the eternal state. And that other side is the eternal punishment of the wicked for those who are outside of Christ. He says, I am reluctant because it's always unpleasant to think about or talk about eternal punishment. And he goes on to imagine, he says, if I were free to invent my own religion... I can assure you that eternal punishment would not be a part of it. But I must talk about it now because I am not free to invent my own religion. I must teach only what the Bible teaches, and the Bible certainly has a lot to say about eternal punishment. Indeed, of all the teachers mentioned in the Bible, think about all the teachers of the Bible, he says Jesus himself had the most to say about eternal punishment. In fact, he put a considerable emphasis on it. For Jesus, it was no small detail in his view of human destiny. The idea of hell or punishment or being lost forever is an uncomfortable topic. That much is to be sure. And anyone who is religious, or a part of a church, or sure of their salvation, who speaks of the idea of lostness or wrath with some sort of joy is to be avoided. Because the reality that some, rather than confess to repent and turn to God, would be judged forever is a gruesome and sad thought. And yet Jesus does not shrink back. He knows that it is the reality of a coming judgment that makes rescue from judgment exciting. No one who will refuse to see their sickness or disease will take Medicine. No one can be found who does not know they are lost. No one rejoices at the prospect of newness of life if they won't admit they're dead. And so it would be possible to want to be a soothsayer, to itch ears and to say, don't worry about any of this judgment stuff, but what I would be doing is robbing you of the joy of being saved. What does it mean to be rescued if the danger is not real? And so Jesus is not harming those who hear, but instead offering the solace of his full salvation. We cannot accept only the pleasant parts of the thing, but reject the hardness that often softens and makes a real change. It's like a person who says, I love exercise routines. I joined a gym. I have a trainer. It's awesome. And then you say to them, well, that sounds like hard work. Is it, is it working? Are you finding transformation? They say, oh, no, no, I don't do any of the hard parts. I'm in it for the outfits. I look great. I bought all the stuff. The coffee bar at the, the place is amazing. And then a lot of times my trainer is more like motivational speaker, but then they also tell me what to do. I listen to the stuff where they say, like, you're awesome, you're great. But then he tells me to do push-ups. I'm like, no way, that's hard. Now I know that's kind of a light way to think about it, but I do believe the temptation to ignore the fact that Jesus spoke about an eternal torment and punishment more than any other teacher in the Bible, it's real. But we must not come to the Savior and say, tell me all of the soft things and I will ignore the reality of coming judgment. What you've done... In an avoidance of what is hard is robbed yourself of all that is soft or good. Jesus and His encouragement to His disciples. Remember, what's the next thing He says? He says, have you understood these things? What things? Well, they are to understand that there is a coming judgment. Judgment. And we must not ignore these truths. The grand accounting of all things means this. That Jesus is the dividing line of all of human history. Those who are found in Him will be ushered into the presence of God eternally, forever, in complete and utter perfection, every tear wiped away, every difficult sad, fallen, sinful thing removed. And those who are outside of Christ will find a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the testimony of Jesus. If He is a good teacher, it is because He was truthful about these things. And it is truth that He encourages the disciples to reckon with. I said it's a kind of potpourri at the end here. He has given an accounting of judgment And now he wants to give an accounting of truth. He asks them clearly, have you understood all of these things? I love how the disciples, they say to him, yes. I'm not sure if it was a unanimous yes. I can imagine they're all standing around. They've been very confused through this. In fact, every time they get a chance, they go to Jesus and they're like, tell me the thing about the sower. I don't get it. So he says, have you understood all these things? Maybe one of them started to say like, yes, and then you joined in. The reality is they don't really, but at least they know enough. The point is is that they desire to follow him to be those who hear. And he said, all right, well, let me give you an accounting then. If you understand me, here's what you'll be like. Those who are trained for the kingdom of heaven, they're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So what does Jesus mean by this? It's another illustrative idea. What does it mean to be a master of a house who brings treasure new and old. I think in part, Jesus means this. That what he has brought, the covenant that comes in Jesus is categorically new. The treasure, the value of him is unlike anything that has come before. Jesus is not just a slightly smarter teacher. Jesus is not just a prophet with a little more success. He's not a pastor or a priest who can also do some miracles. He is a categorically new thing. He is brought with what he is going to call a new covenant in his blood. So to preach or to proclaim Jesus is to describe something brand new, something that must be reckoned with, life from death. And, Jesus says, you must realize that what he has come to fulfill is not brand new, but is old. Jesus is not condemning nor setting aside all that has come before Him, but instead has fulfilled it perfectly. In other words, Jesus stands on a foundation of God's truth that goes back to the beginning of time. Jesus does not come to say, remember that Old Testament stuff where God was mean and whatever else? Well, now a new sheriff's in town. Instead, Jesus says, no, I'm standing on the truth that goes back to Genesis chapter 1. And I believe that what His desire would be that all who understand him rightly show the value of both there's a temptation in our day and age i don't know if you're like this or not but youth is all the rage if it's young if it's new if it's hip then it's cool and it's in and everything else is bad i actually think that the maybe like the under 25 crowd has started to see through the facade of perpetual newness for that, I'm excited. There's a lot of young people who are like, tell me about the old stuff. But for maybe my generation, newness was all the rage. Endless cycles of people wanting to be young and stay young and only do new things. The Apostle Paul recognized this in Acts 17. The, Luke, as he writes and compiles Acts, says this about the Athenians. I think it's an insult. He says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What happens if you're addicted to the new is that you can lose the foundation your life is meant to be built upon. If you're the kind of person who says tradition is terrible simply because it's old, you may just miss some of the most foundational and fundamental things about being alive. The Athenians and the foreigners were addicted to something new. I like to think of them as like sneaking up to one another in the morning, like addicts or something, like you got some of that new? You got anything new? know, tell me something new. And in this way, we must avoid that temptation. I believe Jesus says treasure new and old, because for many people coming to a church that has spoken the same things and sang the Nicene Creed for 2,000 years feels so ancient and quaint and old. But the reality is is that the faithfulness of a church often depends on its ability to consistently speak with new life that which is old. You should be suspicious if I come up with something brand new every single week. Guys, I just thought of this. It's brand new. It's never been tested, never been thought of before, but I'm going to give you the mysteries and the secrets of the brain of me. You should back away slowly and then quickly, and then run. But a faithful scribe of this new kingdom sees the reality of Jesus and all of his newness tied straight back to everything that is fundamental and old. And I think that's the beauty that most people are looking for. They want to be tied to their families, but have a life They want to do the traditional things, but not have it be dead tradition. They want to know that the plan of redemption goes back to the beginning of the world, but they see the brand new thing that has happened in God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So, an accounting of truth in the end is the perpetual newness of all that is old. One other thing about this before we move on to the last accounting of his success. I want you to note that he says that the master of the house brings out of his own treasure what is new and what is old. The reality is that those who are to be the scribes, the teachers of the new kingdom, must have experienced its life personally. They don't borrow the treasure from someone else. You bring out of your own treasure. The most powerful testimony concerning any of these things is to say to someone, I have good reasons for believing all that I have, but let me tell you this one. I've trusted Jesus. He's met me when I prayed. I've felt the freedom of forgiveness of my sins. I've been able to forgive in a way that I didn't forgive before. I've overcome particular patterns or unhealthy habits because I've given myself to Him and the power of the life of Christ is living in me. That is a treasure that comes from within. You don't borrow the faith of your parents, your friends, your family, and certainly not your nation. There are benefits of a Christianized nation for sure, but simply because you live in it does not make your heart brand new. I saw this mistake firsthand. I was with a missionary family in Albania, in the center of Albania, and they introduced me to a, a family, and this kid was very excited because he had a VHS player and a TV at his house. So he brought me over there, and he wanted to show me this stuff about America. And what he had on VHS tape was a full concert of Madonna. Madonna. A Madonna concert. So I thought, the places you end up as a missionary is the craziest thing in the world. I'm in, you know, Eastern Europe, in the middle of Albania, in this poor little place, and this guy excitingly looking at me while him and I are watching a Madonna concert on a VHS tape. But then what he says to me was interesting. You see, he made the assumption that simply because Madonna lived in America or in the West and West was Christian, and more than that, he pointed out that she was wearing a cross at the concert. He said, tell me about this. Madonna is a Christian. Tell me about what that means and tell me because she lives in America. Everyone is Christian there, right? So go ahead. Tell me what I should have said. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you got to untangle the mess there, right? Maybe I should have borrowed the words from Jesus and I said, well, I don't know if she would bring out of her own treasure what is new and what is old. In other words, simply because she lived in the place doesn't mean that she can borrow the treasures Given to those who have committed to Christ. The greatest motivating power for someone to be a teacher in the new kingdom is to say, I have been given what I could not earn in my own soul. Let me tell you about it. And no one else is a trained scribe according to Jesus. So let's cultivate treasures, what we've been given in Christ so that we have something to give. Now you might say to yourself, we have sobering motivation to tell people concerning spiritual things. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Do not find judgment eternally. This should motivate us in love toward image bearers who are different than us, across tracks from us, disagree with us, are in different socioeconomic status than us, different racial communities than us, different ethnic communities than us. We are motivated to love because God loves His image in those whom He has made, and we do not want to see them lost. This should motivate us. More than that, secondarily, we're motivated because we have treasure of Christ. We've seen Him. We see how all that is new in Christ ties to everything that is old and foundational. And so do you say to yourself, well, we're fully equipped. We just go tell people now, and they'll come in in the droves. I'll walk out and I'll tell them about judgment and they're just going to say, okay, thank you so much, I'm in. Where do I sign up? How do I do this? Well, it turns out it's not going to be that simple as we see in Jesus' own life. Matthew tells us in verse 53, Jesus finished the parables and he went away from there. Where did he go? He went to Nazareth, his hometown. And when he showed up, he began teaching, did all the things that he is known to do, which is to teach with power, work mighty works. So What happened? Did they usher Him in on their shoulders? Did they say, Jesus, Jesus, He's our guy? Hometown hero? Did they put up the sign on the road into the small town that says something like, Sam Johnson, 1987 state champion. Have you ever been to one of these small towns? Like the whole town is so proud. Is there a sign going into Nazareth? Jesus, our boy, Savior of the world, 33 AD. Is that what it says? No, it turns out that Jesus, motivated in understanding the final judgment, Jesus, who has all treasure in and of himself, is rejected by his hometown. Those who are listening say, no, no, I can't receive this. Are you kidding me? That kid? We find a little phrase in verse 57 that not only his hometown rejected him, but his own household. That I can understand more. We often have difficulty receiving truth from people closest to us because we know them too well. For a while, his own brothers rejected his teaching and said, no, 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 no way. I remember you crying when you skinned your knee. Nah, I'm sorry. You're not in charge of everything. You can't be a healer. You didn't get math very well. I had to help you. How could you know all things? I've watched plants die in your room. There's no way you're the source of all life. Siblings know better. My brother is a pastor now, and I still, I just told my mom a couple weeks ago, it's really hard for me to to accept this fact. (laughs) He's my older brother, so I lived under his torment for many years. Some kindness, too. We went on very different paths. By the time he left high school, he had stepped away from church, was very cynical, very sarcastic, did not pursue godliness whatsoever to the point where it was a source of sadness and surprise. I did not see much of the transition in his life, and so for me it is still such a mind-bending reality that it's difficult to accept. I imagine I would have been like Jesus' siblings to be like, ah, I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't know. I just remember you. Now in this case, The hardness of their hearts is more confusing because morally, Jesus was perfect. It turns out, though, that sometimes getting it right can be infuriating to those who can't. So the question becomes, what do we do with this accounting? Why does Matthew include this fact that Jesus goes back home, teaches them, and they don't listen? Well, I believe that Jesus here is giving an accounting of the way the kingdom is going to come about. Jesus' own teaching and ministry was like a mustard seed. It wasn't some immediate flash. There wasn't some huge bang. He didn't come from heaven with chariots. Not yet. But there was patience, even in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who knew all things, had to walk the dusty paths of earth. Jesus, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and who is the gate Himself, had to endure the scoffing of His own Siblings. Patience is the theme of the whole chapter of Matthew 13. And Jesus himself, though he knew all things, was not received immediately. This should give us hope and steadfastness and encouragement when out of a motivation for the lostness of people's souls and out of a desire to bring out treasure from our own lives, we find blank faces or worse than that, condemnation and rejection from people who listen. If and when this is the case, you have Jesus to comfort you. It does not mean that there is no hope. It turns out that his own family would go on to be pillars of the church, write some of the New Testament. They were there at his death and his resurrection and testifying concerning his life until their own demise. But for now, how did Jesus accomplish the kingdom? By slow, consistent, patient proclaiming of truth, even in the face of rejection. I believe there's much to learn from this example. He is a, a living illustration, a parable of the way the kingdom comes. I said that this end of this chapter was a bit of a potpourri, so I don't, you know, like one landing strip. Like, how do we land this? How do we really say where we go from here? And I think there's a few things to say. The first is don't let the realities of heaven and hell escape you today. I beg of you, I implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to Him. Do not die or to continue on in your sin because there is eternal punishment. A second reflection might be something like this. Cultivate the treasures of soul that come from a relationship with Christ. Do not attempt to be an example or to invite others into a life that you scarcely have cultivated in yourself. Be one who knows Christ and so therefore wants to give Him away. And finally, I might say, temper your expectations with patience and understand that steadfastness and faithfulness rules the day and that even Jesus had to endure some derisive rejection from those closest to him. We must not hold to a kind of teaching or Christianity that is only to be held so long as we're celebrated. We will often not be celebrated, but the kingdom will come. Let's pray.